Four years of college, two years of theology, and my sixth year almost finishing, I had doubts, self-doubts. It was more a lack of self-confidence. I had always felt I was not worthy enough. Somehow I felt, maybe in those days, the priest was so high on a pedestal that I couldn't measure up. So I struggled with that. I've come to accept myself as I am, as a man who is very much a part of the Catholic Church, but also know, who knows that my experience has made me go not beyond the Catholic Church, but to see that there's a greater spiritual bond that I have with all people. When I thought, what more can I do? How can I go beyond the borders of my own diocese to be a missionary? Our life is about others. It's, that's why Dr. Martin Luther King said it well. He said, the most urgent question in life is, what are you doing for others? When you can look into the eyes of everyone around you and see them as your sister and brother, then a new day is begun. This week on American Real, we bring you the first part of our two-part series with Father Mike Bassano, whose beginnings started right here at this church. Father Mike became an ordained priest in the Catholic Church before having a second calling, becoming part of the Marino Order, serving in far and remote places in Southeast Asia as well as South America. Father Mike also talks about how his theatrics played an important role in his life. He brought that to the streets and the cities that he served and tells all kinds of stories about that. So be sure to stay tuned for part two next week when Father Mike talks about his missionary work in South Sudan, this war-torn area where he still serves today. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Father Mike Bassano.
This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Father Mike Bassano, a missioner currently serving in South Sudan. You are an ordained priest within the Roman Catholic Church where years later you had a second calling to go to Marinol, an organization often referred to as the Marines of the Catholic Church. For the past 32 years you have served as a Marinol father combating poverty and providing health care while advancing peace and social justice. For 10 years you served in Chile, ministering to the families of detained and disappeared people. You have been assigned to Bangkok, Thailand, working with patients with HIV, as well as abused and orphaned children. Today you help those in need in South Sudan, a country which has suffered ethnic violence and has been in civil war since 2013. Since your high school days, you have been a drama enthusiast and have memorized the Gospel of St. Matthew, which you performed in the streets of Chile and Thailand with your guitar as a street performer. You are also the subject of a book entitled Mr. Father, written by Michael McNally. Father Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's good to be here with you. And uh, it's great to be here with you. Uh, you are a man on a literal mission and I'm anxious to get into all the details, but uh, before we do, uh, and we touched on this briefly before the show, but I just found out yesterday that you were one of my early teachers. When I was um, in, at St. Thomas School, you taught uh, religion in the fifth grade, and um, what a reunion this is, some, I don't know, it's got to be that 40 years later. Yes, because I was at St. Thomas between the years of 78, 1978, 1982, so we go back right, over right. 40 years. Yes, yeah. and, that, and I was only there one year, so that short window that you were there, I happened to be there that one year after St. Cyril's closed and right. happened, happened to uh, be able to be taught by you. So thank you for being here, and just tell us, what's it like... Um, you know, you're living abroad now for many, many years. What's it like coming back to the States and, and coming back to your hometown? First of all, I'd have to say how grateful I am to be back home. It's always a joy to come home and to reconnect with my family, friends that I've known for many years. It's that connectedness that makes me feel at home, mm -hmm. uh, that I haven't lost touch with people who have been very much a part of the fabric of my life for many years. Mm -hmm. So it's great to be here again. Um, and if you can, take us back. Let's start from the beginning. Take us back to your childhood. Um, you're one of three boys. Uh, your brother, uh, Ted, is here with us today. Uh, you grew up on the south side of town. Your father was a barber. Your mm -hmm. mother's from Sicily. Um, and I understand she served as your template uh, of faith. And um, if you can, talk about those days and the nine-year-old Michael who looked at the cross at St. John's Church. Um, what were those days like? I look back to those days with great memories. I mean, we grew up in the South Side, and they were fun days. Um, we did a lot of playing together, enjoying together. My brother and I would help clean the barber shop, clean up the hairs after my father would close the shop. Um, they were good times. We were connected with other members of our family who lived next door. Um, they were right up on the second floor. We lived on the first floor. So it was a very family-orientated um, 
time together. We did a lot of things together, played, played baseball, played stickball in the parking lot of St. John's Church. And this nine-year-old boy, of course, we would go to church every Sunday, uh, and I would see the priests on the altar and kind of admire them because they would talk about this Jesus who did so much good for so many people and healed people and helped people. And that kind of inspired something in me to kind of look at that life of that Jesus of Nazareth. And um, so one day as we were continually praying, you know, playing stickball in the parking lot, one of the priests asked me to be an altar boy. So I said, okay. And so I would come to the church and serve at the altar. But as I would come in the church, I would notice it should come in side door. There's a cross on the side door, very huge, very lifelike. And I would just look at that. And there would be a sense of sadness seeing this person with nails in his hands and feet and a wound in his side. And as a young boy, I just said, why did they do that to you? Why? I never knew the answer until I'm learning now a little more. But I knew that that cross was telling me something, that as my life unfolded, there would be a lot of challenges, even a little suffering, but that somehow this figure would be there for me. That's all I knew as a nine-year-old. And so that stayed with me. And then what grew within me was a desire to be a priest, basically because I saw movies about the life of Jesus, too, besides being an altar server. I saw the movie Ben-Hur, and of course, Jesus is more or less the central figure, although he's not seen very much, but Ben-Hur gets his strength and inspiration from this figure. And then I, the movie King of Kings came out, I remember it came out in, the, um, in 1962 or something. At, it was called the Capri Theater at the time, now it's the Forum, but it was the Capri. And I just marveled at this life. And that continually made me think at 11 and 12 years old that this is what I wanted to be. This was the greatest way to follow this hero of mine, Jesus of Nazareth. Seeing the way the priest would live and help people and talk about him, that's what I wanted to be like them. So when, you hear, when we hear priests talk about their calling, uh, does this calling happen over a period of time, over a period of years, would you say? It did. For me, it did. Mm -hmm. You know, age nine, you know, being an altar server, then seeing those movies about the life of Jesus, always constantly looking at the cross. Um, by eighth grade, the desire was still there. I hadn't lost it. And so I went to Monsignor Driscoll, who was the pastor of our parish at St. John's in Binghamton. And I said, Father, I, Monsignor, I'd like to be a priest. And he said, you're too young. And he said, you probably wouldn't make it. I said, oh, that was kind of a surprise to me, maybe because I think he wanted me to go to Catholic school and I had gone to a public school. But he said, okay, you come back and see me later. And so I was determined. I, no matter what he said, that would not stop me from this great desire that was the dream of my heart to be a priest. So he, one day he tells me there's a new Catholic high school opening. This was 1963. Uh, once you finish MacArthur High School, that was the public school I had gone to, he said, I want you to apply and, be, and go to the school. And I said, okay, I'll go. If that's what you want me to do, if that's what will give me your support to help me become a priest, I will go. And I did. 
they were the best years of my life, high school years. We did so many things in high school, drama plays. That's where I first got introduced into the, the whole drama era of my life, of musicals. I was in a lot of the musicals with many friends of mine whom I still see today. We had a parish group called the Sullivan Players that we did. Uh, plays like Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, everything. And then we did two Gilbert and Sullivan operettas in high school. Um, this Mr. Don Sullivan, who was our choir director, he said, we're going to do an opera. And we go, opera? Wow, what is that? But when we started listening to the music and the funny comic lines, I loved it. So I was in two of those plays, playing the comic lead, of course. I was... I like to tell jokes and be, be, be the comic, so I think I fit into those roles. Uh, little did I know, all that preparation would prepare me for something later in life, dramatizing the gospel in the streets as a missionary in Chile. I would have never thought of it back in 1963. So things unfolded for me in my life, and becoming a priest was that way. Once I finished high school, I went back to Monsignor Driscoll and said, can I now go on to study in the seminary? And he said, yes. So with his approval, I had to get an interview with the chancery office in Syracuse. Um, and they said, okay, you'll go to Wadhams Hall Seminary College, which was in Ogdensburg, New York, in the diocese in the northern part of the state. So I went there for four years, got a BA in philosophy. When I first left Binghamton that first year to go to Ogdensburg, it was the hardest time to leave home. This was the beginning of my leaving, and I felt a sadness being away from family. But I knew the dream of being a priest was stronger, so that I stayed with it and met friends in the seminary. So I finished those years in 1971, got a BA in philosophy, and then went to St. Bernard Seminary from 1971 to 75, and then was finally ordained a priest. Uh, and I was very, very happy, but it was not going to be without trial. Um, in my sixth year, that's four years of college, two years of theology, in my sixth year, almost finishing, I had doubts, self-doubts. It was more a lack of self-confidence. I had always felt I was not worthy enough. You know, and I, really? I felt the idea of a priest was the perfect person, which I was not. Little did I realize that wasn't necessary. Just being a human being is enough. But somehow I felt, maybe in those days, the priest was so high on a pedestal that I couldn't measure up. So I struggled with that. And uh, I remember having a dream where I was going to be ordained, but I saw my other friends going ahead, but there was a fence blocking me from going to be ordained with them. And I realized what the dream was telling me. I was blocked because of my own feeling of unworthiness. I needed to break through that. And with the, with the help of people in the seminary, like our spiritual directors, who saw in us the gifts that we had, they would say to me, Michael, you go forward. And I did. And then it was, and then just two months before our ordination, which was here in Binghamton, New York, it was the first time we had ordinations here in 1975. We were a class of 12 Nine were ordained for in the cathedral in Syracuse. Since three of us were from Binghamton, the bishop said, well, I'll come down and ordain you here. It was Fred Park, Tom Nebus, and myself. 
And of course, Bishop David Cunningham was a good friend of Monsignor Driscoll. So I think this was his way of congratulating Monsignor Driscoll for having the ordination in his church. Mm. Two of us were from St. John's. The other, Tom Nebus, was from St. Anne's. So it was a, but before I would be ordained, my mother would die of a heart attack. Um, February 10th, 1975, I would be ordained in May. My mother in the 1960s, when she came over from Sicily, she had rheumatic heart fever that damaged her heart. Now they did what they call experimental surgery at St. Joseph's in Syracuse in the early days in the 60s. She survived it. I remember seeing her as a young boy, 10 years old, seeing your mother all black and blue with all these tubes in and out of her body. I didn't think she would make it, but she did. And they wanted her in the 70s to have a place, a replacement of a valve. They said that she's bleeding there. We needed to have it replaced as soon as possible. But she was afraid to go through that surgery again, knowing what she ex had experienced in the 60s. So she said she would wait until after my ordination. So on that, um, so she dies in February, but I had a dream about that too. It, I've always feel that somehow, maybe this sounds so strange, I know, but somehow God prepares you for what's going to happen. I had a dream of one day I was in the seminary. We were studying in the classroom, and the rector of the seminary comes to the door and knocks and calls me out. Now when that happens, there's two reasons. Either you're being thrown out of the seminary, or someone is sick and dying. I had that dream the night before. And okay, so I, it kind of upset me, but I let it go as I went back and there I am in the classroom. And doesn't that happen? He knocks on the door and I knew. And so it was a difficult time. So I went home with my brother Ted and Paul were all, and um, there she is. She's in the hospital in a coma. She would die 10, ten days later. And uh, we were also encouraged by our doctors to make a decision. You have to either release her from the life support. She's not going to make it, but my father didn't want to do it. And so my brothers and myself were going to have to make that decision for him. But she died before that decision was made. Somehow God took care of that. And, um, and so, so we had to go. So I came home. We had to go through that whole funeral ceremony. This is three months before the ordination. And it was a challenging time. I, um, I remember at the wake, people were coming up and saying how sorry they were, but also telling me, why would God do this to you? You're going to be a priest. Why? why did God take your mother? It's like, but I never felt an anger at God. I felt a deep sadness and loss more than any anger. Um, so we got through the funeral, and then when we're at home, you know, when everybody comes over to the house to, and provides food and everybody's eating, I'm sitting there still kind of in a daze as to what has happened, and I hear a voice within me. Again, this may sound strange. It says, you will put the ordination plans in the hands of your cousin, uh, a friend of your mother's, and your aunt. It's like it was very clear what I had to do. And, and living with that, I moved on. After the funeral, after the way, uh, the funeral ceremony was over, after everything was finished, 
I looked at my father and said, I'm going back to finish up these three months in the seminary in Rochester. But he wanted me to stay home. He said to me, I want you now to stay with me. Which if I was a very loyal Italian son, that's what I would have to do because my older brother was married, my other brother was only very young, and I would be the one being single to take care of him. I couldn't do it. You I had said, to make a tough decision. I had to make a tough decision then. And I looked at him and said, Dad, I love you, but I have to. This is something that's very much a part of my life. I will not leave you. I will come back because I will be in the Syracuse Diocese. I'm not far from you. He didn't say anything. He, he couldn't. He was too grief-stricken. But I went back. And um, I finished up. I, and, and then I knew exactly what I wanted on the ordination um, invitation. It said, I saw a card. You know, those Abbey cards, you get all these albums. And they're nice scripture quotes. But I didn't have a scripture quotes like many of my other classmates did. Mine must have been a quote from someone that said, Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. That was enough. That was the message. That was the message of the cross for me that I had seen years ago. That somehow you'll get through this. Something new will come from all the suffering and pain. And so we did. We got through. Uh, we went through the ordination. My father, of course, being an Italian and from our Italian tradition, said whenever someone dies, there must be no big ceremonies for one year. Mm. One year. So he didn't want a big banquet ceremony after the ordination, or a lot of parties going on. He wanted it very somber, a very sober. Uh, so I said, okay, we'll, we'll dedicate the first mass to my mother, to, to Mary, and um, then we'll have a little party at the banquet masters, which was an Endicott. I don't think it's there anymore, no. is it? Anyway, that's... And I invited the Sullivan players who were members of my theater group, Mary Pegg, as you know, and many others. Uh, they were going to perform. But just some songs, nothing, not wild dancing or anything that my father would be upset with. And it happened. It was, the ordination went well. The, the banquet master, is, you know, he gave some speeches. I got up and thanked, you know, all my family. My aunt made the nice cake. She was in charge of setting all that up and my cousin who got the ordination invitations ready and my mother's friend Dorothy Belcher took care of other things thanked all of them and of course my father for being there with me supporting me even though it's a difficult time then the Sullivan players started all the musical songs and of course they invite me up there I am the full black you know how in those days the full black suit with a nice Roman collar I sit up on, I stand up on a chair and do the song Willow Tit Willow from the Makata, which is a funny song. Okay. And there's this young girl looking up at me. I, my father must have thought, boy, he's a little different. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it was a joyful time despite a lot of challenges to get to that point. And, wow. I've, and I have no regrets about that. Somehow I was always led, I think, by the spirit to move, to keep moving. Accepting the grief, working through the grief, yes, but knowing that there's something greater in store for my life, for our life. Um, incredible, incredible. Um, I also understand that you talked about playing baseball in, in the parking lot and that uh, 
one of your heroes was uh, Mickey Mantle. Oh, yes. I'm a New York Yankee fan, of course. And my, in the 60s, I loved both Mickey Mantle and then Roger Maris. I remember the year of 61 was a fantastic year when they were trying to break Babe Ruth's record. And uh, they were my heroes. They were like uh, men who, against all odds, I think that's what they called Roger Maris's, he, once he broke it, he was getting so much criticism saying, you can't break Babe Ruth's record, that's sacred, and uh, we'll put an asterisk, you know, even if you get 61. And, um, but it's, there were men, and Mickey Mantle was one, he was always sick, I mean, not sick, but he was always injured many times when he played, but he kept playing. And again, these heroes always seem to have their human side. They struggled with life, struggled with issues, even at the end of Mickey's life, I mean, he struggled with alcoholism, whatever, but, and he kept telling kids, don't be like me, don't drink so much, you know, even though I was a great ball player, don't imitate that part of my life. Look at the courage that I had to keep going uh, despite my injuries, and then I remember the movie 61. I must have seen that movie over and over again, done by um, Billy Crystal, yes. who was also an avid fan of yes. Mickey Mantle, and, uh, and you can see when Mickey hit that home run, he was injured, but he's, you know, it kind of gave me courage. These were my heroes who gave me courage to say anything is possible. So that's, that's what kept me going. And um, I'm still a Yankee fan. Every time I come home, Ossining is only like an hour of New from New York City. So I take the train down and I go to Yankee Stadium. Great. So I saw a game two months ago. Great. Got to go back. Great. So, I so let's fast forward a little bit. So now you, you enter the priesthood. Yes. Um, you, you end up back back in this area, and uh, but I understand you also took a trip to Italy and went to Assisi. Yes, yes. I was in, when I was first there, I went to Utica, St. Anthony's Parish for two years, and then I came back to Binghamton because my father was, I had lung cancer, so they wanted me to be close to him, so I was able to, to be here in Binghamton at St. Thomas Aquinas. And, uh, during those years, I also wanted to take a trip to Italy, but I wasn't but knowing that my father was sick, you know, I felt a little, you feel a little guilty, you know, again, do I go, do I leave him? But my other brother was here, my brother Ted and Paul, and I said, that's a chance I have to take. And if something happens, I'll just come back. So I went. And it was one of those, what they call the Perillo tours. It was a two-week tour, you know, every day you're going to another city, getting up at six o'clock. But the most fascinating part of that journey was going to Assisi. I had never been there before. You know, seeing Rome and all the splendor that is Rome and the beautiful churches was awesome. I mean, inspiring, but what touched my life more was being at the simple place of Assisi, being at the tomb of St. Francis, uh, just being in that atmosphere of Assisi. Something happened in me. And again, I, again, this may sound strange or crazy, but I hear a voice saying, live a simple life, live simply live simply without many things, center only on what, one thing that is important. Um, and I came back from that experience changed. Um, I didn't know how at that point. I knew something was different. And it's so hard to explain those kinds of experiences. You, you just never know. Um, but I came back just, Assisi, that was the place that was going to be a stepping stone to something new. 
So when I came back, I just wanted to live as simply as St. Francis. I said, I'm a diocesan priest who has everything. I mean, I have a place, I got my a rectory, everything's paid for, everything, and I have my car. So I looked at all the possessions I had, and my most sacred possession was my 14 albums of Gilbert and Sullivan operettas that I would never give up. I had collected those for a period of three or four years. I looked at them and said, you have to go. You have to go. And that was a tough decision for me. I mean, it seems so simple, but I took those finally and then brought them to the Binghamton Public Library and reluctantly, but finally said, here you are. Use these for the benefit of others. That was the initial point of letting go of anything that would keep me from something more that was yet to come, to, to live life more simply without too much baggage, um, without too much worry either, but to trust. That was the key for me. I think St. Francis let everything go and just trusted that God would lead him. That inspired me. Yeah, and don't you think it's the act, no matter what it is, of that material possession, it's the act of giving that up that allows you to move past the thought process exactly. of material. Of material. And also, it was freeing. I was yes. free now, so free to do without anything that would bind me. Or, or like, what album do I hear today? I'm not bound by the, by the music anymore. There's something wider out there. Uh, and of course, seeing the, mus uh, the music of the movie, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, and the movie itself that came out by uh, sure. Franco Zegforelli. Some believe it was a little too romanticized version, but for me, it touched my heart. I took all the kids to see that movie in any parish I was in. I just, it just spoke to me. This is what I wanted to be like that. Uh, to so trust and to be free to move as the Spirit leads me. So. And at what point did you have what I like to call your second calling? And I don't know if that's what you refer to it as. It would be our call within the call, they say, who knows. Right. Uh, I always believe this, though, that all of us, I would say, I kept saying this in the church, in the we are all missionary in a sense. The church by itself is by nature missionary, says the Vatican Council documents, that we're meant to go out and spread good news with the gifts that each of us has to make a difference in the lives of others. That's the good news. Um, so what happened to me in the 1980s, again, that visit to Assisi, but also it was the time in Central America of Oscar Romero, Archbishop Oscar Romero, and the Merino sisters. When they were killed in 1980, um, because of their commitment to the poor, because of their faith that this is where God wanted them to be among the most desperate people who were abandoned, they were killed. They were assassinated. The four women, you know, two were Marino sisters, Ida Ford and um, Maura Clark, and then Jean Donovan, uh, uh, Ursuline sister, and then a lay missionary, Jean Donovan from Cleveland. Those women, because they gave their lives, they were brutally tortured and killed. And w when I heard that story and, and heard the quotes of Oscar Romero, the greatest commitment that we can have is to give our lives to the poor, something changed again in me not only the inspiration of Francis, but their lives in the 1980s. And it made me rethink my own life as a diocesan priest, saying, when I thought, what more can I do? How can I go beyond the borders of my own diocese? 
to be a missionary. What can I do? And so it came. There I am at St. John's Church in Utica. We had just finished all the Christmas celebrations. New Year's was over. January 2nd or 3rd, we usually get a week off, take a break. It's been a busy Christmas time. So I'm sitting in my room, and again, I hear this voice. Now, is it my own voice? Is it the voice of God? Go to Marino. Go to Marino. Now, my reaction was, where is that? I mean, I heard of the Marino missioners, and the, sure. you know, they'd give their talks in the parishes. How and, far away is it? Yeah, how far away? <laughs> Little did I know, not very far from Binghamton, just to go to Ossining. Um, so I tell no one. I hear that, and I, I tell the pastor, who was John Flanagan at the time, I said, John, I'm, I'm going to go and relax, and I'll be back in a week. So I go to Ossining. I get, you know, I go to AAA. They know where to send me, so I take the car and I go down. Now I have no idea of what I'm in for, of what to expect. I just know that if I'm being directed or moved to go there, that there's a greater plan in store for me. So I finally arrive at Asin and get past Sing Sing Prison saying, boy, this place, that's not Marion. All right, there must be another place. So I get, I go into the driveway and there's this huge stone building with a Chinese architecture. It was awesome looking, you know, this big building. Um, and so I parked the car and then I said, I go to the front entrance and I get enough courage to go to the reception desk and uh, the woman says to me, yes, can I help you? And I said, uh, I'm looking for a marrying old priest. Well, I didn't know what I'm... Okay, just a minute, please. So they make me wait. And it was lunchtime. It was around 12 o'clock when I arrived. So um, one of the priests comes up and he's this big, tall guy, um, Robert Shannon. And he's a nice Irish-looking guy and he goes, Hello, can I help you, sir? And I said, yes, I'm Mike Bassano, Father Mike Bassano from the Syracuse Diocese. I just want to know something about Marino. And he goes, Michael, welcome, welcome. He shakes my hand. He said, well, before we talk, let's go and have lunch together. The, the, some of the men are downstairs. You can meet some of them. So there I am. I take a deep breath. Okay, here I am. So he takes me down, and uh, there I am sitting at a table. There's seven of us. And... Robert, his name was Robert Sheridan, that's it, I almost forgot. Um, and he said, he introduced himself, he said, this is Mike Bassano and these are some of our Marino missionaries. So they introduced themselves to me and one of them says, well, I'm working in Bangladesh, I'm working in Peru, I'm working in Chile, I'm working in China. And they look at me, well, now where are you working? And I said, ah, Binghamton, New York. <laughs> they said, well, welcome, welcome, welcome. So I really had a wonderful time listening to their stories over lunch that one had been there for 20 years helping the poor or, or teaching English or working in a, a refugee camp. It was just an amazing experience to hear the stories. So after lunch, um, Bob Sheridan says to me, okay, Michael, let's go upstairs now. What I want you to know if, if you're hearing these stories, if you want to be with us, to join us only for a little while, you can do so without leaving your diocese. And I says, I can? He says, yes, we have a program called the Associate Priest Program. It's a program for diocesan priests 
who can join us for five years on permission of your bishop, and then you have to return after five back to your diocese, is an enriching experience for the diocese of someone who has been overseas. So I got excited. I said, well, that sounds good. That might... So I go. I, I talked to this uh, program director. Uh, this priest introduces me to Father Del Goodman, who's in charge of the associate priest program. And Father Dell sits me down and says, oh, Mike, welcome now. Yes, now we've had many priests like you, you know, come for us for a short time. So uh, I said, okay, what do I have to do? And he said, well, you have to go home. Obviously, these are the forms. Fill it out. We also need a letter from your bishop giving you permission because you can't. Sure. And then we'll, we'll put you through some psychological testing as, as, you know, we just want to know that the reasons why you're coming to be with us. So after that, I, I take all that information home in the car and I still talk to no one. I've talked to no one. So as I'm in my room in the rectory, I, I look at all the information, fill it out. I start writing to letter, the letter to Bishop Harrison. I finish the letter, but I can feel my hand getting a little more uh, shaky, and I got scared. So I finished the letter and put it on the shelf for a week. Then mm -hmm. I just needed time to quiet down because it was a big step in my life. I had never done this before. I thought going to Ogdens Ogdensburg was a long journey. Now I'm going to go overseas? So after a week, after a time of prayer and just quiet about it, I say, yes, this is right. So I take the letter down, send it in. A week later, Bishop Harrison calls me. He says, I would like to see you. I said, okay, here we go. So there I am. The bishop welcomes me. Welcome, Mike. Come on in. He knew me because he, he was at St. Pat's in Binghamton many years. Okay. So I said, Mike, come tell me what's, what's going on. I said, well, Bishop, I feel a call to join Marianne for a little while just to have an experience of being in mission work overseas. And he looks at me and says, that's a wonderful idea. You know what? I had just been overseas in South America with many of the American bishops seeing the poverty and the distress that people are going through. I think one of our priests should go there. And he said, by the way, we just sent Father Dave Pazinski and Father Ted Sizing to be part of the Marianola Associate Program so you can join them. My jaw dropped. It's like I was expecting resistance. Resistance, because I knew when I was ordained for the Diocese of Syracuse, I w my feeling was that my thoughts were, I'm a priest of this diocese forever, mm -hmm. not to leave and go out. But he just opened the path for me. It was incredible. It's like no resistance. He had already been there months before in South America, where I would eventually end up. It was remarkable. There's no coincidence. So he gives me blanket permission to go. I go through all the psychological testing, and of course that's part of the program. So they, and you get a month discernment program, which is good. I give Marino credit for doing that. Then they say, where would you like to go? And they give me three choices. It was Brazil, Venezuela, or Chile. Now, I had an interest in Chile because the Catholic Church was on the side of the poor against the dictatorship at that time in the 70s and 80s, yeah. General Pinochet. So this was a church very much involved. And I said, I spoke up, I said, I'd like to go to Chile. And the program director said, well, we make that decision. Our, our priority is still Brazil and Venezuela. Chile would be your third choice. 
okay, I, but I just wanted to know, I, I think Chile is where I'd love to go. So I waited. Knowing that, they called me another two weeks later saying, you've been assigned to Chile. <laughs> oh my gosh. Could have been Venezuela. I mean, so the door again is open and the experience in Chile speaks for itself for 10 years there. I, I wouldn't have changed it for anything. Um, and for those people who don't know what the Mary Knoll order is, can you explain a little bit about that, the Marines of the Church? Yes. We were first founded in 1911, June 29th, the Feast of St. Peter and Paul. It was um, the, our two founders, um, James E. Walsh from Boston and Thomas Price from North Carolina. They felt it was time for the Catholic Church to be in missionary work overseas, the diocesan church. Before that, we were always receiving missionaries. And the Pope before that, years before, had declared America to be a non-sending missionary country any longer. In other words, it was our time to move out. Now, some of the religious orders had already moved out, like the Franciscans and, of course, Jesuits. But, but as a diocesan priest, they were, it was time. So 1911, we are founded as the Catholic Foreign Missionary Society of America Incorporated which is long name. Long name. It's <laughs> sponsored by the Catholic Bishops of America. Now, it's too long of a name to pronounce, so we use a short name, Mary Knoll, because our headquarters in Ossining is on a hill or a knoll, and we have the statue of Mary on top of it. Okay. So we say the Knoll of Mary or Mary Knoll to keep it more simple. And this year, 1918, or 2018, the reason I say 1918, it marks the 100th year anniversary of the first four missionaries being sent to China. Oh, wow. So we're marking our, we were founded in 1911, but we didn't get overseas until 1918. 1918. Okay. So we're in our 100th year. So you're in Chile for f five years. Yes. Is that your assignment? Yes. And what happened, tell us, take us back to the moment you get there. What is it like? It's almost a culture shock because I don't. I studied Spanish for five months in Cochabamba, in Bolivia, and then was sent to Chile in the end of 1987. I get there, and um, I'm assigned to a poor area called La Bandera. A hundred thousand people. I, I'm in a poor sector, living in a house with a Marian old priest and another lay missionary. There were three of us together, and. I think fear overtook me when I first arrived because, again, what always plagued me at times was a sense of, I can't do this, or I'm not worthy to do this, or it's better to go home. But I overcame that again. I knew that this is where I was meant to be. So knowing that my Spanish was not the greatest, I kept working at it. I said, because I remembered in language school a sign on the board that said, I don't speak Spanish, but my heart does. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's what matters. You're there because you want to show your love for the people to be with them in these difficult times. So with that thought in mind, I kept going. And the two others that I was with, um, the first day I arrived, I told them, okay, would you give me a, can we walk around the poor area, the poblacion as they called it? They said, no, you, you can go out on your own and do it. <gasps> So I had to open the door and just walk out of our house and just go and meet people, try to speak Spanish, buenos dias, como estamos. Um, 
and I meet this little boy, Carlos. He's a little boy whose father was an alcoholic, whose mother didn't take care of him. He was a street kid. And little Carlos said, I will take you around. Come. He shows me all around. So I'm led by a little child. It was like the beginning of, of a whole experience. He, and he knew I couldn't speak Spanish very well, so he would speak slowly. <laughs> I, I, the kids are your greatest teachers, sure. I mean. They also teach you some words you shouldn't say, but that's kids are kids. Um, but that was my first experience, overcoming the fear of arriving to a new place that was in a time of turmoil and dictatorship and suffering of people. And yet, this little boy leads me and says, welcome, we want you to be a part of our lives. Mm -hmm. So Carlos, I always remember him as the first one who introduced me to a new, a new life of overseas mission work. And then it would just be the beginning. I would meet other people in, in the Poblacion, his family, and then I would meet Loreto Ujoa's family. Loreto, one time I got lost, I had to go to the church. You know, our churches were very small, but we had about 12 chapels because the, the place was so big. I got lost. And so I go by this house, and there's this little girl selling tomatoes and fruits. And I said, so I'm nervous trying to talk to him. I have to get to the church to Iglesia. And you know where it is? He says, yeah. She said, it's up that way. She said, would you like a fruit? And I said, yeah, wait. And I had no money in my pocket. Oh, I had no money. And I said, I'm sorry. Her name was Loreto. I said, Loreto, I'm sorry. I don't have any money. She said, no importa. Not important. You take one. And it was those. And then I would get to know her family because then I I've just felt I've always been, you know, led by the children, but also that I would find a way to make myself at home there. They would receive me, and the Chileans are very welcoming. Um, they would welcome me always with a kiss on the cheek, and so you, you felt that sense that I'm going to be at home here. Uh, but it would lead me to challenging times, um, protesting against the dictatorship when people would come up to me where we were living and say, my, my father was just tortured. Would you go see him? Or my, my son is, is called a communist, but he's Catholic, and he's now in the, the prison. Would you visit him? And I would go. But they would look at me, too. They would question me. Why are you here? Why are you associating with mm -hmm. um, these people? These people. And they would always say, any missionaries who are working in those poor sectors, this was the government, the dictatorship, saying they were they were probably communists, or we were communists, mm. which obviously was not true. But right. And that's why they would always hesitate to give us a residency permit. We'd have to wait months, five months, six months. But we worked, we worked through that. And um, I was involved in a movement against torture. Every week we would go out into the, the city of Santiago, the capital. And for one minute, we're just talking one minute, the group, now it's called a Group Against Torture, Sebastian Acevedo, because Sebastian Acevedo was a man whose children or his young boys were detained by the military and tortured. And he said unless they're released, he would set himself on fire. Mm. And he did mm. in front of the, the cathedral church in the main plaza. So in honor of him, we would, this group was formed to protest every week against the torture that was going on so that the world would become more aware of what was happening there. So this was, it was a very secretive movement. 
you would be called, today we're meeting at the candy shop, which meant they couldn't, it, it was like a, a code. Some, yeah, it was a code to say, we're meeting at this place, come at one o'clock. So we would go. And who would call you? It would be the, the leaders of the movement. They would have our names because we would say we want to be part of this. So they would call us. And we had a, uh, a young man, his name was Claudio Escobar, who was working at our center house in Marino. And he would always go to the movement. So whenever there was a protest, I would go with him okay. because they wanted me to make sure I had someone sure. in case anything happened. So he would always tell me and we would go together. And I tell you, they were scary moments because all of a sudden, you're just kind of, you see each other, you're walking past each other, and then in the next minute you're all coming together, a banner is unfolded that says the names of those tortured. You would sing a song, Yo te nombro libertad, I will call you liberty. Free are those who are being unjustly tortured. By the end of that song, the military was already there with tear gas or water cannon. So you, you get wet a lot or tear gassed. One time I couldn't even see and I went into a pharmacy, you know, because I had lost track of the others. I went into a pharmacy, can you give me something for my eyes? And they said, get out of here, you communist. So I mean, those were, but then I found my way back, you know, and somebody, I found Claudio and he took me. He's very funny, he always protected me. He was a guy, I, he knew we were good friends. And I, I, I officiated at his wedding too when he got married. But, one time was very serious when we were in front of the presidential palace protesting and all of us got arrested mm -hmm. except him. So they put us on the green bus. So he goes in front of the bus yelling all kinds of obscenities to the soldiers. Are you good? So they pulled him on the bus to be with me. <laughs> he wanted to be with you. He wanted to be with you. We got released four hours later, but that was... What's the worst thing that you experienced there? I think the worst thing was seeing the soldiers treat women, especially as we're protesting. I remember that one time, one woman was pregnant and she was sprayed with tear gas right in front of her face. Well, it, I don't know, it was one of those spray can things. This was a pregnant woman. Or to see them kicking an elderly woman who was, you know, one of the members of the um, the detained and disappeared, whose son was disappeared or killed probably, they would go up to her and kick her. I mean, those, I can't understand why that would happen. When they did it to me, I said, you know, I am your brother. And they would laugh, get out of here. You know, there was a lack of respect for life that really, it really brought a deep sadness when I, when they treat each other this way. And that's the same feeling I have now in South Sudan, but we can talk about that later. But you're, you're hurting each other and you're of the same country. Why, why is there so much division? Um, so that was one of the worst things. And then going to the funerals, the worst thing was um, 10 or 12 years after the dictatorship was you know, firmly in control, they would find bodies of the disappeared. And then we would have funerals for them. Mm. Now, those funerals had to be done, no church would accept them. Mm. Because the military, the, the, some of the priests were afraid that then they would be targeted. Mm -hmm. So we had to have it in, in 
the chapel of the cemetery. And you had to be careful who did it, because if they found out you were doing it, come after you. they would come after us. But we did it. There were, what gave me courage was there were two priests, Pepe Aldunate and Mariano Puga. They were strong priests who were not afraid to speak out their voices against the dictatorship. So I would always do things with them. So when they invited me for the funeral, I took my chance. I would go with them. Mm. I would let Mary Noel know that, you know, the, the, our central house that I was going. But they were powerful funerals. You see, one time we had 14 little boxes. And that was the saddest thing to see these. There was some consolation knowing that they had found their bodies and that we would finally bury them in the cemetery. But then also came the anger of the people against Pinochet, you know, who had yet not gone out of power. So it was, whew, they were difficult times. And I, uh, I'm grateful that I was somehow part of that to be a source of consolation and presence to be with them, knowing that they weren't alone when others were kind of staying away from even having any contact with the, these families who had lost their sons and daughters. So I felt that was a real gospel sense that we needed to be there. And I got inspiration from those priests. Those were my heroes in Chile, sure. and they still are. Uh -huh. This Pepe Aldonati, he was 81 years old, and he would participate in these protests. He was a Jesuit. His white hair stood right out. And Mariano Puga was very tall. So these two men, you get inspiration. Yes. Yeah. It's never me alone. I don't do something because I want to do it. It's because you feel moved by so many others, the stories of their lives, or the example of their lives, that say, I want to be part of this, no matter what the cost. So that's what I've always, there's a sense of gratitude for that, those years in Chile. Besides doing the creative part of dramatizing the gospel in the streets, which I did, I enjoyed that. And let's talk about that. So you have memorized the Gospel of Matthew. Yes. Why Matthew, and why memorize the whole gospel? Good question. Um, I was in a popular theater group just after um, the 1990s when the, the, the Chilean people voted Pinochet out by a plebiscite vote. Uh, it opened up a new era in, uh, in Chile where they were going to promote more cultural things to get everybody back, you know, a sense of of oneness and, and hope for the future. So it was a course sponsored by the Italian government called Popular Theater. And since I was in an area where that's what they usually would do in the streets, they do popular theater dramas about the reality of their lives. So I, I signed up for it because that was my background too. Now, of course, I'm older. You know, This is for more people in their early 20s. So here comes this old priest wanting to be interviewed to sign up for this course. And, and they asked me, why? Why do you want to? You're not Chilean, but why? you're a foreigner. Why do you want? Well, because I like drama, and I'm also in a very poor area where I would help the other youth come together and form these groups. So they accepted me. It was a very powerful time together. Um, I remember we had to do pantomimes. And of course, their pantomimes were one guy got up, and he was doing all things of what he went through being tortured by the regime. <gasps> and then what do I do when I get up? I do some funny thing, I don't know. But the reality of their lives were 
what they had gone through. But the purpose of their course was to prepare me for dramatizing the gospel because in that theater, that theater program, I met a director whose name was, um, his name is John. Uh, I can't remember his last name at the moment, but his wife was a Chilean actress. She had done a one-act play on the Gospel of Matthew in the theaters in Chile. And I had th thought about doing that even before he had told me, because I was doing Mark. Mark is shorter. It's only 16 chapters. So I started doing one chapter at a time, but it was getting a little hard to, to keep up. Then um, he told me about her one-act play of the Gospel of Matthew. And I said, could you get me a copy? Because I met her. Um, Maria Canipa was the actor, um, or actress, rather. So she, she gave me the copy of it. It was 20 pages. It wasn't every chapter of, Gospels, of the Gospel of Matthew, but it was the main segments of the Gospel. And it was very kind of high Spanish, you know, which if you're going to use it for a a more poor sector of, of the population. You need to do more popular Spanish, as I would call it. So I took those 20 pages, and in January of 1994, starting on January 1st, I started memorizing one page at a time with a goal at the end of January I would be in the plazas doing the Gospel of Matthew. And I did. That's wonderful. And I had one of the boys in our poor area, we call, um, make a cross for me. He was a drug addict. His name was Manuel, or Manolo, Manolo. I said, make a cross for me. And he became kind of a close friend, because I, I tried to encourage him not to, to smoke the weed or to... What did he make the cross out of? Wood? He made it out of wood. Mm -hmm. You know, very simple, but it was a big thing. It was very high, and... So you could take it with you to the... Yes, the and he made it so he, with a, with a kind of a screw in the middle so he could kind of the crossbar you could put down. So I had a basket, a cross that he made, then I had the white alb, you know, to look like a little costume, um, and a guitar. So I had to bring those on the bus from where I lived to the major central plaza of the city, which was a challenge. Because when I got on the bus, one of the bus drivers said, oh no, we don't take you. No, no, no. They wouldn't take me. Why? I have no idea. Maybe because he wasn't sure what I was going to do. Sure. With this guy coming with a big piece of timber, maybe he's afraid I'm going to attack him. I, I don't know. Finally, I did get a bus. And it was the funniest thing because you bring the cross up in the back of the bus with a guitar and everything. And of course, people getting off the bus, one lady kisses the cross because I told them what I was doing. Sure. It was. Maybe the first guy thought you were a fanatic of some kind. Of some kind, right. or, yeah. Right. Anyway. And I asked the youth of our perish to come with me. They wouldn't go. They were too afraid. I think even at that time in the central plaza you've got military all around as usual so they they didn't know what might happen. So I went alone. So there's this man bringing this cross and guitar and everything into the middle of the plaza. Now it's a plaza where all the other evangelicals are all around. You've got everybody having their corner. But nobody was on the corner facing the cathedral, the Catholic cathedral. So I said, well that's my spot. So I put my stuff down. Now, the, wonder, the wonderful thing is Chileans are very curious. So they're, they're gathering around to see, what's this guy going to do? So I put the white alb, I got the guitar, and I start singing you know, the hymn to joy of Beethoven. 
Escuche, hermano, la canción de la alegría, the song of joy. And um, one lady just goes back to the church and because I introduced myself as Padre, Father Michael Bassano from the Marino Fathers. I'm here just to share the gospel message of Jesus, nothing more. She goes back and tells the priest in the cathedral there's uh, a false priest claiming to be Catholic in front of the cathedral preaching. But thank God, a week before, I had notified the cathedral and, and the archbishop, I'm going to do this. So I'm official. I'm, right. I, you know, I'm with the church. I'm right. not. So she got relieved. But then the crowd got around, and then I started. That was the beginning. Finally, I was able to do a dream that I wanted to do. Uh, but it took a while. I started with the Gospel of Mark, then joined the popular theater group, then getting the inspiration from the wife of this director who had done it already of Matthew. I mean, everything was like a preparation. And what it brought back to me was a sense of gratitude that all my preparation in high school, all the theater plays, the Summer Savoyards in Binghamton, my college years, prepared me for this moment because I had to project my voice without a microphone in the central plaza of Chile. Wow. Incredible. Couldn't have planned it this way. And as you talk about that story, because I've done a lot of research on, on St. Francis uh, for a, a book I'm writing, and it reminds me a lot of his life. He was a singer. He was a poet. He would sing in the streets. Yes. And he would preach the gospel. Did you ever think about that? Or I did. I, I said, this is exactly, you know, I knew that I was following that inspiration all along. I just didn't know how it would unfold, but I knew. And in the example of Jesus, the itinerant preacher, you know, not being in the church, but being outside on it. And of course, people in the plaza would be all excited. They said, this is where the church is meant to be. You should be here. Others would have some other opinion, but that's all right. And the military would watch very closely. Um, but no, that's the inspiration. And I knew that was the simple lifestyle that Francis, that, that's... That's what created a sense of, and I did it throughout all of Chile. I was invited to go different places, different plazas, within churches, schools. But anyway, what a gift. Yes. So then you go to Thailand, correct? Yes. And but that's, see, I have to, every time I had to renew every five years, and I, bishops change. Okay. So after Bishop Harrison retired. So you come back. I come back five years, and this Bishop Joseph O'Keefe. So I said, Bishop, can I go for another five years in Chile? He, he was from the Archdiocese of New York. He, had, he was very mission-minded. He said, of course, again, not any resistance. So I signed up another five years. Now the 10 years, this is it. Now 10 years is coming, and it's a new bishop, James Moynihan. And so I go and talk to him and say, Bishop, I think I would like to stay in overseas mission work, but still stay connected with the Diocese of Syracuse through my visits when I come home or writing articles for the Catholic Sun. I would do whatever to remain connected, but please, may I join them? And of course, he said, well, you know, on my desk I have um, people who want to be chaplains in the armed forces. They've already been three years, and I'm going to say no to them. And he said, just give me a couple months. We'll see. Now I knew what that meant. We'll see meant, well, then if this sounds like a no to me. So I, I leave him, you know, you know, I'm not upset with him saying, well, that's 
That's the way it is. As I'm going out the door of his office, a thought comes to me. Let me check with the personnel director, whose name was Bob Yeasel. Now, he was in Binghamton many years also, and I knew him. He would come to my mother's house for spaghetti and all that. So I, I call to see if he's in his office, and he is. So he comes down, and we sit for a minute. And I tell him, Bob, I, just, I had a tough meeting with the bishop. I don't think he wants me to stay in overseas mission work. And Bob looks at me and says, what's in your heart, Mike? What do you want to do? And I said, as hard as it is to say that, I said to him, I want to stay in overseas mission work with a promise that I will always come back to enrich the diocese with whatever experience I would have had by writing or by talking. And he said, do it, Mike, do it. But he said this, you have to write a letter to the bishop saying you request to be released from this diocese to join Marino. Then you send a copy to me. Mm-hmm. He said, I will make sure it doesn't stay on his desk. Sure. What so kind of I, advice? Yeah, what a sense of relief. So I left the office 10 days later. I get a letter from Bishop Moynihan saying, Dear Michael, uh, I've thought about um, you know, the letter you sent me and uh, you are hereby released from this diocese effective immediately. Wow. Now that sounds positive, but it could be a little, you know, immediately, you just can't. Right. So I'm kind of in between because I show the letter to the people at Marino and they said, well, you can't do this. We, you have to be accepted by us first before you get released because canon law says there's a three-year process of... Um, being incarnated into an, another society or another group of priests. So I worked through that. So it was a little challenging. There were little touchy moments, but uh, they had known me for 10 years already. So they said, Mike, just join our process. There'll be a little formation. Like four months I had to stay at Marinol and Asening to get a little more history of Marinol and to get a little awareness of what I would like to do. And then they said, where do you want to go now? And I had this dream about people in yellow robes, not orange, orange saffron robes, not yellow, orange saffron robes. And I, I had a wonderful spiritual guide. We were spiritual companions. She is a Marian Oil contemplative sister. They spend all their life praying for all of us. So she gave me the encouragement to look at Thailand or to look at Asia. Mm-hmm. And so once I'm ready to go, the... Um, our superior general says to me, Mike, where would you want to go? Because it's a consensus type of understanding in Maryland. They just don't say, go here, there. They'll ask what I would like to do. And I said, well, I've been in South America. I'd like to try a new experience. And he said to me, that's good, but I want you to be where you're together with other Maryland sisters, brothers, priests, lay missionaries. So it's kind of a, a family effort. And he said, there's two places, Brazil or Southeast Asia which was called a unit, which meant everybody was working together. There wasn't, it was a consensus model of being together in mission. And since I had already been in South America, I said, well, if you don't mind, Thailand or Southeast Asia. And that's where I got assigned. And you spent how long there? Ten years. Ten years. Seems like it's a ten-year Chile, and now it's ten years. Wonderful experiences there. Found the language very difficult. Another challenge, I spent 10 months trying to learn Thai language. 
I would remember halfway through the course, I would go to the, the malls. You know, Bangkok has a lot of shopping malls. I would go and go see a movie, weep a little bit, cry because I wasn't getting this language, and then get back and try again. So I stayed with it. And they were special years there, too. It was another different culture because it's a non-touching culture as opposed to the Chilean culture, which when you see someone mm -hmm. kiss on the cheek, there you have to go, sawadi kap, sawadi krap. You don't touch. So that was a little challenge for me not to. But the people were wonderful there. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better experience there. That went from many phases, from, from working in the jails there to working in the northern part of the country with indigenous tribes to finally ending up at a Buddhist temple caring for people with HIV AIDS. I mean, I couldn't have, I couldn't have planned that. That was the most remarkable experience, being at a Buddhist temple, a Catholic priest volunteering to work with the monks in caring for those who were at that time sick and dying of AIDS before the ARVs, the antiretrovirals, really became more prevalent to help the people. And I remember there's a story about Monk Sanan, a Buddhist monk. He and I got very close. I think we were about the same age. Um, Years ago, he had contracted HIV, and um, he was healthy, but then he got very sick near the end. But we had known each other for a long time, so when he was sick, I took care of him. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were times he just wanted to get up and walk. He was very feeble in walking, but he, he got up and we walked outside. And we would talk about life and about religion. And the thing that we would say to each other, you know that Jesus and the Buddha are brothers. And I said, yes. And that's what makes us one together. We are one. And when he died, the greatest joy for me was the monks who knew that I had taken care of him said, Mike, you prepare his body for cremation, which means you have to, you know, you, you bathe him, you wash him. And then they came to me and said, here. And there was, these were orange saffron robes. They said to me, you put them on him and prepare him for cremation. I looked at the monks and I said, but thank you, but I don't know how to do it. You have to help me, which they did. And we, we, gave, we gave him his new clothes again to be ready for his cremation. And then we went and we prayed together. They would pray. The monks always pray above on a higher um, platform. And then you, you pray below. And we each prayed in our own way, but there was a connection. That's what I've learned in mission, there's a spiritual connection with all religions, all peoples. And could we talk about that for a moment? Yes. Could we talk about religion? Because uh, I think a lot of times people get caught up too much in the, re the, the dogma, if you will, of the religion versus what its true purpose is. Would you yeah. agree? So, no. I agree. I agree. I think. What I've learned in every experience, every religion, from the Hindu, I love the Bhagavad Gita, to the Buddhist scriptures, they all talk about compassion. I don't live for myself. Do not cling to anything that is I or mine, it says. That's, now, that's a Buddhist teaching, which means, which is the same as what Jesus would have taught, do unto others as you would, you know. Sure. Leave all behind and, and give to others. All religions have the spiritual word of compassion in it. That's what unites me, I think. Um, and, uh, to mention that a few weeks ago we had a funeral of a priest who worked many years in Peru. 
His sister got up at the end of the funeral and said, she's from Montana, and said, there's a quote from our first Indian Native Americans, and it goes like this, the world will be saved by great stories and compassion. Mm -hmm. When she said that, that's exactly what I feel about religion, that it's meant to go beyond. Yes, there have to be laws or doctrines, but it has to go beyond that. There's a spiritual realm of compassion that unites all of us. And I love Meister Eckhart. You know, he's a great Dominican preacher. He said, the highest work of God is compassion. Wow. Now, they, that's nothing new. I mean, Jesus said that, be compassionate as God is compassionate. Sure. It's that, that's what unites me. Even now in South Sudan, there's an Indian, um, she's from India, Tata. She works in the human rights part. There's a connection that we have on religion. It's not about doctrines. It's about how God is working in all of our lives. Right. So I'm, it's just, that's my belief that we are one family of God. Yes. That goes beyond. Anyway. And you once said, I, I got this from your book, um, I have to stop apologizing for who I am and what I stand for. At what point did you realize that and, and what exactly did you mean? I think it what, it, what my heart was really saying was to be who I am. Uh, not because I'm a Catholic priest to say, well, uh, I'm sorry that we have all these laws and things that might keep me from being one with you who are Buddhist or Hindu. Um, I've come to accept myself as I am, as a man who is very much a part of the Catholic Church, but also know, who knows that my experience has made me go not beyond the Catholic Church, but to see that there's a greater spiritual bond that I have with all people. That uh, and I can't apologize for that. That's something of my experience that says I'm, I'm too connected with others to say that, well, if they aren't part of the Catholic Church, then they're not saved or they're not worthy. I can't say that. So I, 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 can't, apolo I, I can't apologize that I've moved beyond. It's a deeper, for me, it's a deeper spiritual um, experience that says we are more than what than who we are meant to be. We, there's something that that unites me with so many others that I can't apologize that I've got to that point. I'm not sorry about that. It's something that's made me so alive and so experienced the presence of God in so many different ways beyond my own tradition that I would never have known before. So uh, that's what I can't apologize for. I think that's and how, how, how do others learn from that? How can others feel that same expression? I think it's possible. It's by encountering other people, knowing that there are, if they're in your community, if there are Buddhists or Muslims or Hindus, um, that their spiritual grounding is something similar to ours that we have yet to know and but get to know them see them as human beings first that's how i got to know monk sanan or even uh my muslim brothers in the um, in the camp they invite me to their service sometimes i go on fridays to be with them 
Um, and for the layperson, same thing, right? The same reaching thing. Out. Reaching out, not to be afraid, just to learn from them. It's not that they're going to change you or take you away from your own faith. What I have learned is my experience being with other religions and other cultures, it deepens my own understanding of my own faith. It gives me newer insights that I would not have known before. Because isn't our own faith really about our personal relationship and why we are here? Exactly. The purpose of our existence, our relationship with God. Buddhists would say a relationship with the truth, centering on the truth of who we are, the true self. Right. Uh, Hindus would just say, seeing God in you. And I love, uh, in India and in Nepal, they say namaste, which means it's a greeting. I recognize and respect the God who is in you. Mm, wonderful. What reverence for human life that would say we shouldn't kill or do anything. I mean, that's learning that says it could, it could increase and deepen your own faith understanding. I, it's, it's available to us all, not just to me because I've been overseas. It's there. You could read it in some books. And it's there. I, um, I'm amazed. The seed of God's presence is within all of us. I, all the religions have taught me that, and I. But it's through the people as well, not just by reading, because reading, is a, a rational way of of coming to a deeper understanding, but it's the experiencing of, going, to a Buddhist service or, not being afraid to talk to Muslims. Most of them are moderate Muslims. They're not the extremists. Right. They're not the ones trying. They're not terrorists. They're my brothers, too. And I've been so touched by the theologian Leonardo Boff. Um, he was like a liberal theologian of South America. He's, he ran into some difficulties with the church. He was trying to be a little too confrontative. And that's, you know, that's the tension we always face, you know, being that we keep our traditions, but it's always good to see how we not change them, but give a different expression to how we believe that. Uh, and he was, he, I read his book once, he said, we are all, initially we have to see each other as sons and daughters of God and sisters and brothers to each other. Yeah. And so that's what I tell the people in the camp in South Sudan, we are one family, let's not fight against each other, one. We are not foreigner, we are not this ethnic tribe or that ethnic tribe or Italian or Irish, yes, we're all up, but that's our background. But there's something more that unites us. We are one people. We are, oh, the, the presence of God is in all. It's you, so enriching. That's yes. all I can tell you. It's. Do you have hope that the world could get there? Yes, I do. I've never lost that hope. Because I believe that. There's, it, it's a sense of belief that all will be well. But that's what the cross also means to me, that we're going to, through, we're going to, through, going to go through suffering and challenging times, but it doesn't mean the end of the world. I don't always like some of the theology that says, oh, it means that the world is coming to an end. Well, in a good sense, maybe in a sense that the end of the way we treat each other, the end of the evil we cause against each other, maybe it'll usher in a new time of a renewed humanity where we see each other beyond borders as sisters and brothers. That's what Jesus came to tell us. That's the kingdom of God on earth, not in heaven. It's here where he said we go beyond the boundaries of 
race, nation, culture. We are one. We are meant to be one. It will come. Now they say that's the second coming of right. Jesus, which means, but it doesn't mean the end of the world, but the end of the world is we relate to it now the way we treat each other. Maybe a new time will come. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Yes. Uh, it's not something that you wait for in heaven. I, I'm sure after death that will come, but I mean now. The message of Jesus was so very powerful for now. He wasn't talking about just, oh, don't worry, suffer now and then you'll go to heaven. He, he was saying more than that. And that's what I've learned. Uh, so I'm grateful for this. In this life we all have, I, I look at it as the most amazing gift that we've been given to be here, I mean, to be born to be alive, to live. And I feel a lot of people live in fear. I feel a lot of people are not afraid to get out of their comfort zone. Yeah. You've yeah. done that in a big way. Yeah. And I also feel that there's a lot of people that say go to church on Sunday. And, but are they really living and expressing whether, what they, no matter what religion they are, yeah, what they put day in to day, were they, you know, reaching out to people, the compassion that you spoke of, yeah, it's, and and I guess my question to you is, how can we as people, the average person, how can we help? Just by example. Primarily, that's one way. Yes, I think that's how I learned. I followed the journey of my own life through the example of others. I learned from others whether it's Oscar Romero or the Marino sisters or the simple little Carlos. or You learn from others. You look for people who are inspirations for you, and, and they're given to you. You don't have to go look for them. They will come to you. I believe that's how God works in our lives. Um, so everybody has that capacity to go. The thing is, is to go beyond ourselves. Mm. No, psychologists call it ego transcendence, so it's not just about me. Our life is about others. It's, that's why Dr. Martin Luther King said it well. He said, the most urgent question in life is, what are you doing for others? Dr. Martin yes. Luther King, Jr., I always remember that. I mean, that's... What a great statement. Yeah, to go beyond the comfort zone, or what am I doing? Not that we have to be so busy that we don't take time for ourselves. That's important, too, but I mean... We have to go beyond ourselves. And that's what inspirational examples teach us, whether it's a Mother Teresa or a, a Mahatma Gandhi. Or, those are the great examples. But, sure. And it goes beyond religion. Uh, not that I'm not saying religion isn't important. Yes, if it helps us go beyond ourselves, not just on Sunday, but to go during that week to say, what am I doing? to make a difference in the small acts of kindness uh, to people around me, then that's, that's all that matters. That's how I see my life now. It's not in the big things anymore. It's what I can do each day to, to bring somebody, to uplift them, and they to uplift me. It's kind of a mutual thing. When I was younger, I think, it's all me. I have to go out there. But now I find there's something that it's reciprocal when you reach out to others you find they enrich your life I, I would never have thought that I guess the wisdom of the years teaches you that yes um, 
so I'm grateful as you say it's life is a gift every uh, and there's a story with that too that the gift of life each day there's a story about uh, children go to their father and say how do I know when a new day of life is beginning and the night is over and uh, one and the father doesn't answer right away, but the son said, is it when I can distinguish between two of the trees, between an oak and an apple tree? The father says, no. The other son says, oh, I know. When, I, when it gets so clear, I can tell which one is a goat and which one is a cow. No, but the father says, okay, maybe the other son says, I know. Maybe when it becomes clear and I can see the road, people going on the road, the father said, no. And so the sons asked the father, then what? How do we know when the night is over and the new day is beginning? And the father says, when you can look into the eyes of everyone around you and see them as your sister and brother, then a new day is begun. That's the gift of life. I love story. Our lives are story. We engage through story. Now that I am doing American Real, I am able to help tell other people's stories. And there's an art to that. I want people to be inspired by the content. And it's not me, it's the guest. I want them to learn from the guest as I'm learning from the guest. And once you start to see progress, um, to me, it's motivating and makes you want to work harder to get to the next piece. Now you're pushing us to record episodes. So I had guests in and I'm learning the technology. And of course, we had many challenges and lots of resistance, but I don't know, you know, you just persevere because when you have a passion for something, you find a way to get it done. I think the biggest breakthrough, I would say after episode three, and the guests, you know, a couple of guests came up to me after saying, thank you for that interview. This was the best interview of my life. That's when I knew, okay, I'm on the right track. I need to keep doing this. I need to tell people's stories. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable because when you do it, you'll be surprised the response that you receive. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, join me in Podcast Your Passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information.